there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to a new emergency episode of Ringer Dish. This is your source for everything pop culture and entertainment on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Kate Hallowell, and I'm here with Nora Princiati as we have become the de facto Taylor Swift correspondents on TheRinger.com this year. Uh, We got together this summer after Taylor dropped an album on us overnight, and obviously that was her extremely successful eighth album of folklore. And we're back again today because overnight she just gifted the world with a studio sessions film on Disney Plus all about the making of folklore. Nora, you are our resident hardcore Swifty. How are you feeling on this blessed day? I'm feeling great, Kate. And I'm so happy to be with you and to be partners in Taylor with you. And (laughs) it's always a good day when we have some new Taylor content to digest. And this was a fun one because it's kind of it's kind of a doc in the sense that you get to hear her talk. You get to hear her talk about her life and talk to her collaborators, but it's really a, it's a concert. And that in a strange way took me by surprise a little bit, just because I think there's been a lot of Taylor news lately. She recently has been sorting through the sale of her master recordings without her knowledge for the second time around and is figuring out, whether she wants to be re-recording all of her old songs to kind of make a play in that whole business situation. She also is making a triumphant return to the Grammys. Folklore, I think, got six nominations. Or maybe Folklore got five and she got a sixth for Cats. For Cats. Let's not rule out Cats. No Cats erasure on this podcast. (laughs) Getting a Grammy nomination for Cats is a fairly significant accomplishment. I just, I don't want that to be left unsaid. But this video comes at a time when there's just been a lot to unpack, uh, a lot going on at the moment, you could say. Yes. So (laughs) it was interesting to me that all of those thoughts were kind of swirling and ruminating. And I was like, what's she going to say? What are we going to learn? And then you start watching and... There's a lot, but it's a concert. And I actually thought that that was what was most effective about it is that it's just very cool to see people who love music and love making music, making it together and to be able to experience an album that I really love in a new way, but in a way that feels very true to what the product that we first heard in July, August. When was it? July. I believe it was July 24th, 23rd. Okay, that sounds right was like half a year ago at this point, which sounds insane. Time just has no meaning anymore. (laughs) Slash 10 years ago. Right. Yes. Uh, Yes. Both yesterday and forever ago. Uh, But yeah, I totally agree. First of all, I just like, I mean, we can get into like our big picture thoughts, but it was, it was just nice to see these songs that we didn't, we weren't sure we were going to see live, you know, and like a lot of these sort of B-sides and, and these things that like, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't typically see performed on award shows or on late night shows or whatever. And it was just nice to actually 
see them performed through and through. So we're going to run through our reactions to this film. This is titled Folklore, The Long Pond Studio Sessions. Uh, And we're just going to try to make sense of everything we learned, all our feelings about it, uh, just kind of a a half a year after it released. So I want to start out, where do you think this film and sort of the the things that it gives us about this album, where does this fit into sort of Taylor's, both her discography and her kind of concert documentary filmography? Well, one of the things that was nice about this is that we kind of got the timeline, which we knew enough about, but we got to kind of see it represented visually. So they started working on this album in May and they made it completely apart but came together in September at Long Pond Studios um, in upstate New York, which is where Aaron Dessner records, to just play it together. I thought it was interesting because they were all coming together for the first time and experiencing music that they wrote in a very abnormal way, in a normal way for the first time. It was funny because I think whenever Taylor does a project like this, she produced it. Her her production comp- company got the production credits on this. There's always a question of, is this a chess move or is this just a labor of love and something that she wants to put out into the world? And I think there's a lot of sort of unfair weight that we put on creators built into that question because to be a good celebrity, to be a good artist, you have to plan, you have to think, you have to actually strategize. But then that gets flipped on a lot of people. And I think her especially, and it turns into, well, don't be contrived. We want this to be authentic. But I found that an interesting tension in this project because you have her and Desner and Jack Antonoff having a lot of conversations about things that I very much believe they talk about all the time, which is how the things they care about and things that have happened in their lives inform their songwriting process and their music writing process and their creation process. I think, because this was a very packaged video project, there were conversations about how to present those and how to order them and what topics they wanted to go over. And it felt to me like there was a lot that was intentional in this that was placed so that it would sort of inform the broader Taylor narrative. I think we'll end up talking a a decent bit about her situation with um, her old label and her masters and and all of that. And I think a lot of that informs what we saw in this. At the same time, I think it was all grounded in just stuff that we know she cares about and grounded in the, the creation of it in a way that I felt satisfied by. I don't know if everybody else will, but I just felt like I don't really care if you had a, a conversation with producers and publicity people about like, how do we want to discuss this? How do we want to, you know, should we say Scooter Braun? They decided not to, certainly. I just bought the general tone of it and it seemed like a maybe more polished version of what would happen organically between those people. And I I thought that that was an effective way of making it normal and enjoyable, but also something that kind of like advances the Taylor narrative a little bit. I mean, that's kind of the beautiful like duality of Taylor Swift, right? Like we love her because she's honest and authentic and writes from the heart. And, but we also love her because she has this like very well-crafted 
celebrity and this well-crafted sort of image that she obviously puts a lot of time and effort into. And I agree. I think that's kind of the appeal, both of folklore and of this specific film, because you do get sort of like unpolished Taylor. You know, it's like minimal makeup. She's got the curly, messy bangs. She's got like her folklore styling, which I had mixed. I had mixed feelings on, but I've come around on the curly bangs. Uh, You know, she's in flannels and they're, they're just like sitting outside in like beanies and and it's not, you know, I mean, if we'd gotten like a lover studio sessions or a 1989 studio sessions, it would look totally different. Um, and I liked kind of just having like the the cuddly quarantine cardigan fall vibes sort of like laid out like that for us. And of course, it's intentional, but I think it just works really well. And I uh, like I said, I've, I've come around on, I, you know, I like the styling. I like to think about, you know, what Taylor Swift's best era is both musically and visually and all these different concepts. And I, I just, I think it wouldn't have been as fun sitting in isolation myself in my cardigan and robe and like watching this like very made up and totally done up Taylor Swift's like in her quote unquote authentic studio session. So I liked that it was more just like her hanging out with the dudes and like whatever she would have been wearing anyway. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. I like, I liked the mix of sort of polished and unpolished and sort of leaning more towards the unpolished vibes for this one the wardrobing is very <laughs> it's like a 2013 madewell catalog <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of that going on like, like a lot of delias <laughs> like we had a we had a corduroy hat mm-hmm. i don't yeah i'm i'm anti page boy hat i have to say the hat was not doing it for me i'm with you on that one although <laughs> she was wearing a coat at the same time as she was wearing the hat like a big patterned coat that I really, really was partial to. But that outfit, which also included like some flat velvet Mary Janes, I was like, I literally have seen like a Madewell model when I was a sophomore (laughs) in high school wearing this outfit. And I don't quite know how I feel about it. Uh, Also had a lot of, like we had a velvet shirt dress. We had a lot of shirt Mm -hmm. dresses in general. Yeah, just the some of the wardrobe and some of the styling choices I was mixed on. But I again, I'm like, you know, I'm sitting at home. I've done things to my hair that I've never done before in quarantine. I've totally just like taken hard clothes out of my life, done with buttons, done with waistbands. So like, I get it. I too want to just lay around in my flannel shirt dress and just like sing with my bros. Um, speaking of those bros, I want to talk about Aaron Destner and Jack Antonoff, who are the two co-collaborators that um, are featured in this and are in these studio sessions with her. Uh, obviously, everyone knows Jack Antonoff uh, of Bleachers. He's collaborated with with Taylor a bunch of times. And he was kind of like, I would say, kind of the main sort of MC of this a little bit. He kind of was the one that was like, okay, here, we obviously have like a script to follow. We have to cover these topics. And so he kind of seemed like the one that was pushing Taylor to address certain things. Would you agree? Yeah, well, I think... <laughs> Jack Antonoff is such a funny character to me. He is responsible or partially responsible for just so much music that I absolutely love. I have to say watching him just live on screen is a slightly uncomfortable experience for me. I don't know if I can fully pinpoint it, but I do think that by the end of this, I think it's just an acquired taste because by the end of the concert, I was starting to get it. And he actually, I I would love to know if Jack Antonoff has done improv because when he was talking to Taylor, it really felt like 
someone you knew in college who just like was in the improv club and brought it up a little bit too often doing the like, yes, and thing. Absolutely. In every conversation, because she would bring something up, some quality of a song or some feeling he could draw more on whatever subject out of her. And it actually, to me, was informative in terms of what his sort of value add is in a lot of the recording situations where I think sometimes for better or for worse, men who work with a lot of women, sometimes like you wonder what the relationship is there. Is it, is it glomming on to people who are super talented? Does he have a specific way with those people? And I could kind of see why particularly like a particularly emotive person and someone who emotes from a distinctly female perspective like Taylor would have an easy time having him as that person who's going to be like, so like, let's talk about the worst days of your life. Like, let's draw that (laughs) out. And how do we put that in a song? And it's almost like it's producer, but it's a little bit of therapy. And I felt like that was a relationship that I have wondered about for a long time and started to feel like I kind of understood a little bit by the end of it. I'm trying to think of what piece it was, but I'm now remembering that I think Jack did a magazine profile once where he talked about viewing his production style as very much like, we're going to have a conversation and we're going to find an idea out of it. And you're probably going to find the idea, but like, I'm going to help lead you to it. Mm -hmm. And that, that became more clear to me. I also think that when you're working in a medium where it's like, you're pretending to have a normal conversation while, you know, cameras are rolling. I think it is helpful to have someone who's such a longtime collaborator of hers in, in that, because even though I definitely felt like, okay, nothing, there are no accidents in Taylor world. It there's just an ease for the two of them around each other that, again, right in the beginning, I was like, this is weird because I do not have a personal ease with Jack Antonoff, but she does. And I, I kind of feel like I get it now. I had the exact same thought. I was out on him in like the first half of this documentary. I was like, okay, stop asking if you're doing a bit, like stop making jokes. But you're right. You need that person who knows Taylor and and is prompting her to give a little bit more about these songs. You know, like she'll say something and he'll be like, oh yeah, and you felt that way a long time, right? Or she would say something and he'd be like, yeah, you wrote about that when you were 20. And like he has that background and, and it's it's not so much like some random person doing an interview who like doesn't know her. It's like her actual friend who can sort of push her and knows her perspective and can kind of illuminate that a little bit more than maybe even she wanted to. And he also has just like added some levity. I think Aaron Dessner is like a pretty measured, mellow guy. And I think you kind of needed like one more person to like crack a couple jokes. Dessner was great to talk about the songs. Yes. Like I love, I mean, so Taylor's been actually great for a long time about doing things like the voice memos that she's attached to digital versions of albums where you can kind of hear songs in raw early states. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so cool because I think it's a very cool thing to, to have someone at her level in the music industry kind of pull the curtain back on the process and Mm -hmm. acknowledge that creating music is work. Like, she is, she's a celebrity. She's a talent. She's living her dream, but she also has a job. 
which is to right. do this stuff. And there's process to it. And I think any time that you can get that, it's a very cool thing, particularly because, uh, and I think it was Antonoff who was talking about this at one point, she writes in a very um, fast-paced way and it's very free associative and very like, oh, I wrote down that I wanted Meet Me Behind the Mall to be a lyric in a notebook years ago. And then all of a sudden they're writing this album and there's a spot for it and it, it goes in. I think understanding how that stuff comes together is just fascinating. And what I did feel like Desner was really good at in this was being the person to bring up, okay, this is where we wanted to work with strings. This is where... I thought this idea that I had was super outside of the box, but I sent it to you and you found a way to to make it your own and have it make sense. So I think is being in a big Disney blockbuster Taylor Swift special, like what Aaron Desner thought he would be doing? <laughs> no, probably not. But I think there was a good mode for him there, just sort of being the person who always brought it back to the music, man. I also love that he was just so clearly impressed by her, you know? And it's not someone who's been friends with her forever. And like, it's not someone who is just here to pander and be like, Taylor Swift's one of our greatest musical minds. But it's like someone who had never worked with her before, who, well, who had, you know, a long time ago had not worked with her for a long time. And not someone who goes way back, not someone you would associate with Taylor Swift. And it's someone who has a lot, people have a lot of respect for in the music industry. And then all of a sudden is like, I sent you this track. I had no idea what you would do. You put music to it. And like, we just had this incredible connection. And like, I just thought it was really, it was really fun to see him be like, you did an incredible job on this. And like, these are the specific musical things that I loved about it that I was impressed by. We're like, we don't know. You know what I mean? Like we love Taylor Swift, but like, we don't know why she's particularly impressive on, on certain musical aspects of these songs. And so it was nice to see someone who really knows what they're talking about, who has no real connection. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to say the things that he said. Uh, and it's just fun to like watch him be impressed. Well, folklore is so funny in its position as the indie record that's much cooler than mine that <laughs> Taylor came back and made however many years later. And yep. I tend to be someone who is reflexively skeptical of the positioning of like indie as cool or even for that matter of folklore as a specifically indie record. Like I think sure. that's lost some of its meaning at a certain point. However, to see the validation that for better or for worse, there have definitely been times in, in her career when she's sought from people who would be sort of in the Desner category. It's it's very nice. There's something very satisfying about watching that and to hear him talk about sending her a guitar and wanting to see what she did with it and letting her be in that club. I found it nice. I agree. I agree. We didn't have to find it nice, but we did. So, and we've talked in the past right. about how we, we wish she would collaborate with more women, which I did feel a little bit, especially when she was talking to uh, Aaron Dessner about Mad Woman and she was going on and on about like the female experience and female rage. And we can get into that again in a bit, but I was just like, I would like this better if she was talking to a woman about this. Well, that's, so there's another, there's a similar conversation that you see in uh, Miss Americana where she's talking about the man and she's talking to Joel Little, who's a producer on that song. And it's kind of a similar thing where she's just talking. And I think we, as women, are like eating it up and being like, yes, I know that feeling. Like, I totally know that feeling of feeling gaslit and like, I'm not crazy. 
I'm just responding to someone hurting me. But the guy is just like in the room kind of sitting there being like, right. yeah, huh, I'm totally. an open ear, but <laughs> ah. so yeah, we're now two for two on that. Maybe hopefully we'll, yeah. we'll switch that up one of these days for a dollar name a woman. But you know, they did a great job. I thought that as, as sort of like her sounding boards for this particular session, I thought they did a great job. I want to ask before we move on to the actual songs, what were your thoughts on the move to Disney Plus as opposed to Netflix? Obviously, Miss Americana was a Netflix movie or bought by Netflix. This is a Disney Plus release, uh, which a lot of people seem surprised by that she's kind of pivoted in that direction. Yeah, so she did Miss Americana was Netflix and then her Reputation um, concert tour, which was before Miss Americana, that was on Netflix as well. She The pivot to this Disney ABC family would have been the City of Lover concert special that was the summer late god all the months blend together (laughs) Um, but it was before the folklore release i i don't i don't know anything about that situation that would indicate it's it's anything other than just a normal business decision Mm -hmm. um i did think the one unfortunate thing about this being on disney plus was that even though folklore was an album where taylor was was finally swearing and dropping some F-bombs. She can't swear or they have to bleep it out. (laughs) Um, So that was kind of a bummer. Let Taylor curse. But other than that... that, Our let Taylor curse uh, mission was just has to live on another day, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, I agree. I just thought it was funny that when we logged on to talk about this before the pod... Uh, our producer Steve Allman was like, "Yeah, love to see that like uh, that warning, the cursing warning, like the plus fourteen on Disney Plus, and they do censor out several swear words in this, so just bad timing in terms of content. But whatever, I have Disney Plus, it's fine. I want to get to the actual songs, so as well as talking about it, they performed the whole album, start to finish. They talked about some songs more than others. There were a couple where I was like, I wanted to hear more about these rather than just seeing them live. But I want to talk about which songs you liked the live versions of, which songs worked best sort of in the studio, the live version, and which ones didn't. Do you have any favorites? So overall, like my my sort of broad answer to that was that it was cool to hear how undone up to sort of appreciate how undone up folklore in general was because most things sounded pretty similar, right? She sounded great. Like I thought she sounded great singing and there was a lot where we're not talking about carbon copies, but you basically got the same effect that you get from the, the versions that were on the album in these live recordings. There were a couple times, I think in particular exile, which is the duet with Bonnie Vare, I found like very just hair standing up on the back of my neck compelling. I don't know if it was just the split screen being able to see both of them because Bonnie Vare was not at Long Pond Studios. Um, That was even for the uh, video version. They were still remote. But there was something about just watching that happen that gave me chills. That was my favorite one as well. I just thought that one was great. And they changed it up a little bit. Bonnie Bear obviously did like, you know, is first of all, is incredible live. So like did a lot of like note changes and things like that. Um, but yeah, I agree. For some reason, like the split screen of them, him, he's in a mask because obviously he's in his own studio and they're just like wailing away. And I just thought that part was great. I like that version better than the original version, I think. 
I just, I really, maybe, maybe what happened is that his voice, it's so deep. When you hear it without seeing that it's coming from a human, it almost sounds like it couldn't possibly be real. (laughs) So maybe it's the extra punch of just like, no, literally this human man is making those sounds. I was like, holy smokes. Uh, So I thought that was super effective. I also thought I have a new appreciation for this is me trying Mm -hmm. after watching this. It was one where, first of all, the conversation that she had introducing it, which was about um, addiction and substance abuse, which I didn't realize that there was an angle to that song about that. One kind of reframed it. And then two... She was incredibly emotive performing it. I think she teared up at the end. And the sound is fairly similar to the album version, but it was at least making me hone in on it a little bit, just having it repositioned and and understanding the subject matter a little bit more. So that was another one that I felt like stood out. I don't know that there was anyone where I felt like I didn't like it because it was recorded. I think some of the more up-tempo songs like August and uh, Last Great American Dynasty, it's just different. It's I think the recorded versions of, of those are nice. There's a thing she does with a backing vocal, a backup vocal on August, the part where it's like pulled up and said, get in the car and there's another layer of the vocal underneath it. I missed that. That's one of my favorite little touches uh, on folklore in general is... is that moment on that track. So you lose a little bit of that, but that's, that's the beauty and also the limitation of a live recording. So I was pretty satisfied with the sound of it all. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think you're totally right. Like the whole point of folklore is that these are very stripped down. So the studio sessions aren't going to be that different anyway. There were a couple note changes where she just kind of played around that I really liked. Um, There was one at the end of the last great American dynasty that I thought was really fun. I do have to say, I I wanted her to talk more about... First of all, I really love The One, which is the very first song on the album. They kind of just get right into it. And I just really love it. I wanted I wanted more about that. They talked a little bit about, you know, I'm, good, I'm doing good. I'm on some new shit. Sort of like summing up her, her basically state of being when she made this album. But the one I thought was honestly quite strange that they didn't talk very much about was Cardigan, which is the whole single for Folklore. I kind of wanted more insight. We talk a lot about Taylor Swift's single choices. And on our first folklore podcast, we were kind of like, why this one? And we did not get an answer to that question. <laughs> they kind of were just like, here's Cardigan. And I don't know. I, I just, I wanted at least some acknowledgement of like why that was it, why they shot a music video for that one, why that was the one that they really pushed. Um, and we got some information about, about like the trio of Betty, Cardigan, and August, but we didn't get anything really specific about Cardigan. So I don't know. I thought that was surprising. I hate to give a cynical answer. I wonder <laughs> if Cardigan as single might just be because they had a cardigan for the merch. Because I think her, her, um, she's said some stuff recently. And I think this was part of uh, the like Instagram release video in the trailer for this. She's noted how part of what made this album different was not having to think about singles, not really thinking about radio in the same way and not having to think about playing a stadium or touring. Mm -hmm. So what she's leaned on in describing this work since it was released is very much like, we didn't need to do singles. Well, you did kind of do 
one single Taylor. So either that just was, was okay, well, yeah, let's make this a single. And it was never something that was important to her or she felt like it's, let's just make it this one. It doesn't have to be that big of a deal or, or, or they thought it was going to work out better and it just didn't. So in the lore of folklore, it's not being placed after the fact as a big deal. It's Mm -hmm. probably one or some mix of those things, but yeah, it did. It didn't come off as one of the sort of big songs in this. Yeah. And one that did, which we got a lot of information about was part of that trio, Betty, August and Cardigan. Um, And I think kind of the big news item coming out of this documentary is that the writer who's featured on Exile and on Betty, uh, William Bowery, was revealed to be Taylor's very serious boyfriend, Joe Alwyn, which we kind of knew, but we didn't know, you know? (laughs) Yeah, we didn't know, no. And we also, so not it's in some ways less significant to me that Joe is indeed the co-writer than it is that like, we can talk about Joe now. They right. said Joe. They just said his name. Right. He exists. Which I'm sure was another another very calculated choice that we talked about earlier where it's like how do... It's like the soft launch of the boyfriend on Instagram. You know how like there are jokes about the soft launch and like how you tell people about your new relationship. This was like the Joe soft launch where you just like throw his name out and act like everybody already knows, which we do, but it's a big deal. And it's also... Right. That's exactly what it is, is that they never say Joe Alwyn. Right. They just it's say not Joe. Like my my boyfriend, Joe Alwyn, who you may know from Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Right. It's just Joe. And like, it's like, okay, we all know Joe. Sure. Taylor also says that Joe <laughs> plays the piano beautifully, which that was a big deal to me. I, okay. So the, the way she talks about this is she just acts like Joe is like this musical prodigy and she just like had to write a song with him because he was just like existing and being musical in her house, which is just a whole, whole cake of layers that we need to get into. Uh, so when she was talking about Betty, she says, Joe sang the fully formed chorus of Betty from the other room. So then Jack Antonoff's like, did you, were you like, hello, I do this professionally. Like, we'd love to have a conversation about doing this with you. Like, how is this man just coming up with songs? Is that just what happens when you live with Taylor Swift for a long enough time? So without shading (laughs) Joe, as we now know him, I have a feeling that he just was singing the completed chorus. Now that when, when she said that, that sounded very familiar to me because it sounded like a thing that I've heard or read countless producers and co-writers say about Taylor Swift. Right. My best guess would be that Joe, uh, who I believe comes from a musical family and definitely, you know, is, is a good piano player. Like all of this is, is true and documented. I would lean to assuming that Joe was singing or playing something that made the entire chorus immediately clear to Taylor. <laughs> made her right. hear it in her head. He wasn't just singing about Betsy's homeroom in the other room, just off the top of his brain. <laughs> or, you know, here's the thing is that because she's kept him so private and he's wanted to be so private for so long, we don't know that much about their relationship. <laughs> Maybe they are truly so simpatico and perfect for each other that the, like deeply high school vibes of Betty that seems so quintessentially Taylor Swift. Maybe they are also quintessentially Joe Alwyn and we just don't know this. I love that idea. They're just like 
two brains. Listen, there was an invisible string connecting them to each other, and it ended in Betty being written and given to the world. Uh, the conversation about this is very funny. It's kind of another moment where Jack Antonoff sort of like proves why he's there. They're talking about, you know, Taylor's like, I, I just never thought we would take the step. She's like, hey, like, this could be really weird. We could hate this. But like, since we're in quarantine together, do you want to write the song? And Jack Antonoff makes this joke where he got a text from Taylor being like, hey, Joe and I wrote a song. And he was like, I was expecting it to like be about your cats. Like, you know, just couples like making up silly stuff about their pets, which I was like, Taylor definitely would. I'm sure she has written songs about her cats. But yeah, they they wrote Betty together. And Taylor talks about how, you know, he was singing the chorus of it. She realized it sounded good from the masculine perspective. And so then that kind of created sort of the love triangle of Betty, August and Cardigan. Wild. Who knew he had it in him? I did not. The male apology was how she described it, which I, I, right. I, I'm a fan of that genre as well. Yes, definitely. And then he also came up with a part of Exile. He, he wrote the first line that Bonnie Bear sings in Exile. Is he now Grammy nominated, technically? I believe, yes. Yeah, Grammy nominated William Bowery. Pretty exciting. What a power couple. <laughs> Love that for him. Yeah, I, I was also just very surprised that like now we know that Joe is Joe. I don't know. It was it was a very, uh, I guess, interesting method, but it's very Taylor and it's very folklore to just be like, I was I was at home with my boyfriend and we wrote songs together. So sure, why not? Joe has entered the chat. <laughs> Joe has entered the chat and he's here to stay. Uh, actually, I want to ask you on a public forum for the record, when would you estimate we will hear about a Taylor Swift engagement or marriage? Wow. 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 I've actually had a number of conversations on this topic recently. I think it's pretty soon. Here's the thing. I I would not be surprised if, um, and this is like, this is sort of serious and sad, but given that she has family members who have health situations, that's the type of thing that can lead people to want to have babies and hurry up that whole process. And I have a feeling, you know, Taylor's come a long way in terms of her feeling like she needs to um, stick to traditions, but I I bet they would want to get married first. And so I, I wonder if that stuff could happen soon, but I don't know. I have no idea. A year from today, is Taylor Swift married? Yes or no? Yes. I feel the same way. I think it'll but be... I think, I think she will come out with mu- more music even before then. I, I think so too. I mean, she's on a roll. Listen, she's cranking these things out in quarantine. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I think she'll do just like a very private, very secret wedding. And then one day it'll be like, we're married. Me and Joe together forever. I can, I can see them eloping too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she's over like just the the dance, the public dance of it all. I think she really is just like backyard wedding with the people I love. Like that's it. Which is like kind of the thing to do right now anyway. Like we can't have big weddings anyway. So well, and she has this whole thing that we, we'll get to when we talk about the lakes, but like she has this whole thing about escape. Yes. Run away and get married, Taylor and Joe. Please or, do it. Or don't. <laughs> do whatever you want. But it seems like you love each other and you made some nice songs together. So Yes. And we'll make more. Um, I want to talk about the other big news item of this. You've mentioned it a couple times, but uh, she does not specifically mention Scooter Braun or her big business fiasco uh, in this, but she does very much refer to them and sort of assume that the audience knows. Were you surprised by how she handled that? Did you like it? So this this was like my biggest curiosity was just sort of how all of this was handled when I pressed play. 
And within five minutes of the film beginning, Taylor's brought up her label. And she's talking about her current label. And it was just in an innocent conversation about um, her having to call her label and say that she had made an album, made folklore in this untraditional way. And it wasn't packaged the normal way with singles and touring plan and blah, 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 blah. But that struck me because right off the bat, we were acknowledging the sort of business realities that come with being her, being an artist in her position. And it felt very telling to me, both of just what's on her mind right now in general, and two of the elephant in the room is wrong, but just some of the subtext of Mm -hmm. this film. And then the first pointed song that we get to is My Tears Ricochet, which... I don't I don't believe to be about Scooter, but it it reads to me as about her old label executive, um, Scott Borchetta, who was the first person who sold that label Big Machine along with her masters to Scooter Braun, who then recently sold it to a private equity group called Shamrock. That conversation about the making of that song, My Tears Ricochet, was woof. She compared it to people going through a divorce. She talked about greed and betrayal. And that song to me, we'll get to Mad Woman later, which is that's the one that's Scooter directed. Mad Woman is like, it's rage and she seems hell-bent on taking him down, not just in that song, but in, in general. But it is a little bit more of a general feeling. It's like, she identifies that type of female rage and that gaslighting as something that she feels more strongly towards him than she's ever felt before, but it's not as if it's a new feeling. The conversation about Scott with My Tears Ricochet was like, you have hurt me in a way no one has ever hurt me because you knew how to do it. And I've always really loved that song, but it is track five on the album. Track fives have huge significance in Taylor albums. And it drove home why that one is where it is in a way that like it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like that was just crazy. Without naming names, I did not like, I I felt like she was saying exactly how she feels. And I think, you know, Jack, she's talking to Jack Antonoff about it as well. And he's like, you know, it's one of the best songs you've ever written. And he's talking about sort of the emotional impact as well. And that's another moment where I'm like, you know, the story behind this too. You know what I mean? Like he knows exactly what happened to her. He knows exactly what was done. And like, it sort of felt like, you know, she was talking to him about things that, that they had both kind of experienced and like her very deep emotional feelings with her friends. Um, and I thought, I just like thought that that was a benefit to having someone who, you know, she didn't have to be like, someone did something really bad to me one time. And like, that was new information to him, you know, and it's not new information to us either, which again, I think she's, she comes into this expecting that the viewer has a lot of this background information, which we do. And I do think that just kind of lends her the freedom to sort of just give these little hints at what she's talking about. Like not in a coy way, not in an annoying way, just kind of being like, we all know, you know, who I'm talking about. We've all had this experience. We all know what experience I'm talking about. Um, And yeah, this one specifically really hit hard. She talks about how, you know, in all superhero stories, the hero's greatest struggle is is with the villain who used to be his friend. And and at first I was like, ha ha, like Taylor Swift watches the MCU. But really, like, you know, she really is talking about the person who who betrayed her as deeply as they could have. 
Um, and yeah, I thought I, I thought that this discussion was sort of hit a lot deeper than I had expected. And I hadn't really I knew that the song was about this to a certain extent, but not not as deep as as they went. There's a lyric at the end of that song where she sings, when you can't sleep at night, you hear my stolen lullaby. And like, that's fucking brutal. Like, I, so good. <laughs> there are some Taylor lyrics that I can't like I can only listen to in the right headspace. And that's kind of becoming one of them. Like, it is tough. I think, I I don't agree with Jack that it's like her best song. I don't think that's quite right. But I I don't know that it, when the album first came out, it was immediately recognized as a very significant, you know, capital V, capital S, Taylor song. But I think in hindsight, we will remember it as one. The scooter thing that cracked me up the most, which is much more trivial than that, was that, and there's there's a, another point when she's talking about um, conceiving a different song where Taylor mentions that she'd watched The Last Dance and yeah. was thinking about Michael Jordan a lot, which just like made me scream laugh when I heard it. I know, that was great. But I wonder if like she kind of, I, I, I love to picture her watching that and kind of like psyching herself up to be like, yeah, okay, go get him. Like, Scooter is your enemy now because there were a few times in this where I just felt like she was almost taunting him. There were two moments, one one right at the end of Mad Woman. They finished the song and she just does kind of like a direct look at the camera and it's a little bit of a smirk, but it's also a little bit of like game face. And then the and I saw that and I was like, am I did I just make that up? Like was that kind of like a yeah, hey, you, this is about you, look. But then when they did um, The Lakes at the end, there's the line, name-dropping sleaze, tell me what are my words worth, which is also a play on words with William Wordsworth because she, this the setting of that song is the lakes in England where all the poets went to die and she feels very romantic about that location. But she says that line which is related to the sale of her masters. And then she does like side-eye direct look to camera again. And I was like, who thinks of this shit? Like only Taylor. It's like how to make this song as secretly savage as I possibly can. I agree. I also noticed the like eye contact with the camera during Mad Woman, which she very rarely did during the other songs, if ever. Uh, I was like, am I imagining that she's staring directly into my eyes? No, no, I'm not. Uh, She's looking right at us. I think those were the only (laughs) two times in this whole thing where she broke the fourth wall. And it w- she just did it to be like, fuck you, Scooter. Yes, I love it. I love the execution. Uh, really quick before we get into the rest of the things that inspired this album, I want to ask you, speaking of My Tears Ricochet, uh, you mentioned that track fives have like very great significance on Taylor's albums. They're always very emotional. They're always um, very deep, very personal. And I want you to rank or at least say where you think My Tears Ricochet falls in the grand spectrum of Taylor track fives. So to remind you and the viewer, uh, her track fives are on Folklore, it's My Tears Ricochet. On Lover, it's The Archer by Jack Antonoff, right? That's a Jack Antonoff one. Yep, that's a Jack. On Reputation, it's Delicate on 1989. It's All You Had to Do is Stay. Red is All Too Well. Fearless is White Horse. Speak Now is Dear John. And Taylor Swift is Cold as You. Where, where, what would you say are like the top two and the bottom two track fives? 
Okay, so the top two are all too well and Dear John. The bottom, I've never been a huge fan of The Archer. Man, I like All You Had to Do is Stay, but it's a little meh. I think by default, it's forgettable. Guys. It's a little forgettable. White Horse is an underrated classic. Cold as You is probably, if I had to put three at the bottom, that would also be down there just because mm-hmm. some of that early stuff is, she's just not quite firing on, on all cylinders on every sure. track. So I think I would go, I would probably go All Too Well, Dear John, Delicate, White Horse. Mm, no, sorry. All Too Well, Dear John, My Tears Ricochet, Delicate, White Horse, Cold As You, All You Had to Do Was Stay, The Archer. I agree with that, I think, to a certain extent. I mean, All Too Well, obviously, number one. It will never, it will never lose that spot. But yeah, I think My Tears Ricochet, top three, for sure. I would agree. It's a great song. It is. It's great. And it's just hits you every time. Just ugh, right there. Okay. I want to just wrap this up by talking about things that inspired this album. Taylor talks a lot about how, you know, this is the first album where she was like, I don't have to be autobiographical. I don't have to, you know, feel like I'm writing from the headlines or writing what people want to read or want to know about me. Like she just took inspiration from everywhere. You mentioned The Last Dance, uh, which she she talked about when she was writing, I believe it was Epiphany. She was thinking a lot about winners and losers. And she was like, I thought I wanted to write about sports, which is just incredible. Uh, I would love to hear that song. It was the discussion around Epiphany was so funny because it started out, oh, I wanted to write about sports. And then it goes, I was thinking about winners and losers. And then she was like, I wanted a strings moment. And then it ends up being about she did research on her father who fought in World War II. So she tried to make something. She tried to like, you know, go really deep and think about, you know, what could happen to someone to make them not want to talk to their family about things because her grandfather never talked to anyone about his experiences. And then she related that to first responders during the pandemic and the trauma that they're going through now. And she basically made it about like bearing witness to your family's history and relating it to the people who are who are fighting through this pandemic. So it was like this incredible just like journey from Michael Jordan to COVID-19. And that's what Epiphany is apparently about. <laughs> yeah. So one, th- that song, I think Jessner made a really interesting point about how the harmonies in it are totally different. And you listen to it and the chords are just, they're very like stable building blocks for the song. There's uh, Chords can be something that kind of move you along through a song and tell you what's going to come next and they help things resolve. That you just kind of have to sit with. And that was one of those moments where it was very cool to have this as something where they just discuss a song and they discuss the making of it. And then you hear it because I could hear what they were talking about on that one probably more clearly than a lot of the other songs, not because the conversations weren't clear, but just because some of the other conversations were more about feelings (laughs) to pick a word, those things. (laughs) But they had this very interesting conversation about one, the genesis of the idea, but also wanting it to be the strings moment. And I thought they did a really good job of explaining how that stuff came together. I do, I'm calling bullshit on Taylor a little bit in terms of the, both the non-autobiographical nature of this record, but also of her always having done that in the past because she's certainly made a lot of autobiographical songs. She also, 
This is also the person who read Romeo and Juliet and then was like, do you know what would be funny? What if I write this song, but then I just change the ending because that's something I'm allowed to do and I will write love story and it's going to be this huge song. Um, She also wrote Enchanted after meeting the Owl City guy one time, which I guess is autobiographical, but like... I I think there's this idea that Taylor Swift struggles with source material unless she has a tumultuous relationship. And I just have no idea where that came from because it seems completely ridiculous to me. The part where I'm calling bullshit on her notion that this is not an autobiographical record is that the more we learn about it, the more this is about I love Joe. Like this yes. is this is an I love Joe record. Like Absolutely. And that's fine. And I'm happy for her. But let's just call a spade a spade here. Like that's what's happening. You're totally right. And you're right. Even the song and even the songs that that she specifically has taken from someone else's life. For example, The Last Great American Dynasty. She talks about how she always wanted to write a song about Rebecca Harkness. Even that, you know, it, it loops back to her in the end. And she obviously is drawing parallels between Rebecca Harkness and herself. And she bought the house and and it turns out being her. And she's the, you know, baddest woman this town has ever seen. And and it's just funny. It's like, okay, we know that you're telling all these stories, but you're not talking about Michael Jordan. You're clearly talking about people that that you think are also are also you or also relate to you. Well, and that's, we should note, like she talks about that being sort of an old country music trick where yes. it comes back around at the end. And mm-hmm. I loved hearing her talk about that because that's something <laughs> that like I've, it it there's a version of that that happens in Dear John where at the end it's the girl in the dress wrote you a song. And it's not necessarily revealing a new character, but it's changing the time frame, right? You're talking about an old relationship and what happened in the past. And then all of a sudden it's, yeah, well, guess what, loser? Like, dropping this track. <laughs> and one of my favorite parts of Last Great American Dynasty is the phrasing when it comes back around. What I love about that is that the phrasing in Last American Dynasty where she brings it back around the reveal, she holds on to it until the very last word because it's, and then it was bought by me. So you don't actually get it until the very last word of the sentence. And I just, I think that's so juicy and so fun and such a great example of her attention to detail. So that's another example of something where you just get to hear them talk about it. And there's, it's just cool. It, it, comes back to it being very cool to watch people who care about making songs kind of get into that process. Absolutely. And then, you know, they sort of the songs about other people, I think, are are sort of interspersed throughout the the first two thirds of the album. And then the last third or so of the studio sessions, I think she gets a little bit more personal um, with Peace, Hoax, and then the bonus track, which is The Lakes. Um, and I think all of these kind of relate to each other. But I thought specifically when she was talking about Peace, uh, their discussion about that was very deep, very interesting. And basically, Taylor was saying how personal it is to her because she just has to make this constant effort to make herself and her family feel like she has a normal life. And just ignoring, the, she literally says the elephant in the room, which is the fact that she is Taylor Swift and she is this unbelievable celebrity. And, you know, she's the song is just about like, I can't stop people from taking pictures of you and from tabloids, from writing about you, obviously talking to her family and Joe and her friends and basically just asking the question, like, are the things that I can control about our lives enough to block out the things that I can't control? Um, and Aaron talks about suffering from depression and how hard it is from people in his life and, you know, with the ups and the downs. And um, I just found, you know, after all the discussions about Rebecca Harkness and about her dad and about Michael Jordan, it was really nice for her to really 
bring that back home and be like, this is actually like very, very personal though. Like these, these last three songs just describe things that I want and, and hopes that I have and, and relationships that I have with my family. That's another element of just watching her on screen that I think was harder to understand earlier in her career because Taylor wears her emotions on her sleeve to such a degree. Like she's such a palpable feeler and you can see it. Her face when she sings also is so expressive. It's I'm curious to see if she ever does more acting because it's almost like if she weren't a real person, you just wouldn't buy that someone is that raw of a nerve all the time. And I think you have to have the accrued knowledge of living with someone as a celebrity and and as a part of your sort of content consumption life for a long time to have it become believable in a weird way and just be like, well, yeah, you you feel this. And I know you feel this because you've talked about feeling it and have sort of acted in a way that illustrates how you felt about it going back decades at this point or, or more than a decade at this point. So that's one of those conversations where you know that there was a meeting somewhere where people had a conversation about how do we address this? How do we go through this? But I just, I, I bought it actually more than I was expecting to just because we all can in some ways relate to feeling anxiety about how people that we love are going to react to things that are outside of our control. And also we just know that that's been a part of her life for a long time. So it, it felt like a window, even though it felt like a window that had been specifically chosen for us to look through. The last song that that they perform and that they talk about in this, which puts a nice little bow on everything, um, is The Lakes. And it just, it's perfect in many ways. First of all, thematically sums up the album, but also, you know, visually, this, this studio sessions is shot in this like beautiful cottage studio in upstate New York. We're getting these drone shots of this water all around it and these beautiful fall trees. And it's very woodsy and it kind of looks like a cottage that they're singing inside. And that goes straight to to Taylor Swift talking about, you know, this this lake district that she visited in England that you mentioned before and like this cottage backup plan that she has. And again, Jack Antonoff's like, you've been writing about this forever. And she's like, yes, yes, I have. Like, I've always wanted to escape and like live in a cottage. And it's just it's just great because she has, first of all, just sort of like escaped sort of her musical constraints and, and you know, created an entirely different album. Two, she literally is performing this in the woods during a quarantine, like has escaped the city, is in the cottage, is near the lakes. And, she, you know, it's just a song about protecting your sanity and leaving and connecting to the creatives and other creatives that understand you and understand your vision, which I thought was great. It's just perfect. Just wraps it right up. It's a great... That song has grown on me too. And I can totally see, like, I can see that in her sort of headspace and her writing in LA, but thinking about rainy lakeside England days. Especially now. It's such like a, it's such a quarantine song. Like the reason I've listened to folklore so much in the last five months is because I've just been taking these like depressing walks in the morning because there's nothing else to do. And like, I just walk in like my Indiana neighborhood and just listen to folklore, listen to the lakes, like walk past these like little tiny man-made lakes and my little like cul-de-sac and it just like I'm like yeah I get it Taylor we are the same person we are experiencing the same things and it's like raining on me and it just like I'm in my cardigan you know uh and it's just like it just feels like the exact vibe that I wanted 
for this like very strange time of my life. Absolutely. And I, I encourage anyone who's watching this to make sure that you watch through the credits because if you watch through the credits, you're going to get some pretty good footage of her cats just like <laughs> wrestling each other and her description of like how they fight each other, which I think she described as the marshmallow wars, yep. which I found very <laughs> funny. And I had a moment where I was watching it and just thinking about thinking about Taylor watching her cats fight each other like on her bed in L.A. And then in her head, she's like off, like strolling through a cemetery where William Wordsworth is buried. (laughs) And I was like, okay, like that's your vibe, man. And I I dig it. We all have to take some mental leaps to get through this time of our lives. You know, got to escape these four walls somehow. All right. Well, this has been an absolute blast. I We have to wrap it up because I have to go watch The Last Dance and try to understand what about it inspired Taylor Swift to almost write a song about sports because I have absolutely no idea. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Nora, this was this was fun. This was... Well, I'm sure we'll do this again the next time she, she drops something on us overnight. I can't wait. All right. Thank you so much, Steve, for producing. I'm Kate Hollowell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Ringer Dish. 